Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Martin Walker's Bruno, the French police chief at the heart of his best-selling mystery series, is everyone's ideal local cop, as well as the town's most eligible bachelor and a talented host with an international award-winning cookbook in his name. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Martin talks about French charm and his passion for the Perigord and his years as diplomatic correspondent in Gorbachev's Moscow and Clinton's Washington. But before we get to Martin, just a reminder, you'll find full show notes with links to Martin's books and website at thejoysofbingereading.com. You'll also find details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Martin. Hello there, Martin, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, I don't think I've ever had a, an interview conducted at such a long distance before. Yeah, it's wonderful, the, the modern technology. You're <laughs> in Washington, D.C., and I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, so that's really fun. Look, um, you've had a distinguished career as a journalist with top newspapers, including diplomatic correspondent for The Guardian. What made you switch to fiction? Um, well, when, uh, when we were based in, uh, in, in Brussels, my wife decided that we'd be foreign correspondents all of our lives and our children needed a place to be rooted. And uh, she decided we should get ourselves a place in the Perigord, which we visited from time to time where we had some friends who lived. And I became increasingly... Uh, fascinated by by the Perigord and particularly by the prehistory, the prehistoric caves uh, like Lascaux. And I remember the shock when I, I first saw it and thought, my God, these people were in no sense primitive. We, we've been quite wrong about this. I mean, their artistic sensibility was like our own. And so I, I began researching, interviewing archaeologists and reading books and visiting all the caves. And I wrote my novel, The Caves of Perigord, which is still in print, I'm about to say, which is really about what kind of human society could have produced Lascaux. And before that, my books were, were pretty, you know, were, were, were pretty conventionally journalistic and uh, a history of the Cold War, a book about Gorbachev and Perestroika, a, a book about modern America and a history of America and so on, um, and a book about the National Front in England. So... The, there was a sense of liberation about writing this uh, this novel about the Perigord, and of course it got me even more locked into the fascinations of this part of France. That's fantastic. So you moved on to the mystery genre and a French police chief called Bruno. How did you move to the decision to, of that choice of genre? You've explained the setting, but why did you go to mysteries? Well, because I... Um, in our village in France, I, uh, I 
became friends with a, a local neighbor who took me down to the local tennis club and rugby club. And I began playing on Friday mornings in a, when I was there in a, in a little sort of um, uh, a, a foursome of, of, uh, of three local people and me. And, of course, it was a very gentle game of tennis from about uh, 10.30 till about midday. And then we went into the tennis club, which being France has a wonderful kitchen, and we made ourselves uh, a pretty spectacular lunch. And one of the four people uh, whom I played with was uh, a man who'd been in the French army for 10 years and spent his fair t- spare time teaching the local kids to play tennis and rugby, a hunter, a very keen cook, and a village policeman. And I thought this was a splendid individual, a very fine man who tried never to wear a gun and had lost the key to his handcuffs. And I thought, what a fabulous character. And I've got this lovely uh, region of the Perigord. All I need to do now is work out how to write a crime story, uh, because if it's going to be the policeman, it's going to have to be a mystery of some kind. And so that's really how it started. And um, then... My wife was, uh, who had worked in publishing and in, uh, and in journalism and in, uh, and in, 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 in cookery. Uh, my wife said, well, you know, publishers are always more interested if they think there might be a series coming rather than just a one-off. So go away and write five short paragraphs on the next five books in the series, which is what I did. And uh, my agent came back to me and said, well, we've managed to sell them in Britain, America, Canada, Holland, Germany, and so on. So that's how it all got going, and I have to then sit down and write the next five. That's fantastic, and that's great advice for, I think, a a writer to to do that, like write a paragraph. I'm starting on one book in a series now, and I've got totally bogged down with too much detail, so I need to do that, put it into one paragraph. Um, Bruno is an incredibly likable character. He... um, I, the reviews you read online, everybody just falls in love with him. He's actually got his own website as well, hasn't he? But he was wounded. He served with, in your character, served in Bosnia yeah. and was wounded, I think, both physically and romantically while he was serving in Bosnia. Is there something about his vulnerability that you think helps make him so likable to readers? I, I think that, that might be part of it. I, th- I, think, look, I think the first thing is that we all of us have this sense that, that our police ought to be our neighbors, we ought to be able to trust them, to like them. And in fact, increasingly these days, particularly in the US and where police are armed, that's less and less the case. And given the kind of social problems that, that are being thrown up that the police have to handle. But, we, but we, I think we all of us have an ideal cop, someone who will be, who is honorable, decent, brave, realizes that, in a sense, his work is as much uh, social worker as being, a, as being any kind of agent of state repression. Um, and so I had this, this idealistic image of, of what a policeman could be from what I'd seen of, of my friend in France. And so I, I think part of the, part of the appeal is the, the idea of a really nice guy as a cop. But also, as you say, I think it's the... It's the vulnerability which balances out all the other skills he has in cooking and so on. Um, and the fact that he's, you know, he's constantly living with the prospect of a broken heart. Yes, and uh, I mean, I think he's around about 40, so he's at an interesting stage of his life. He was regarded as the town's most eligible bachelor. He's still unmarried. 
but there's that sense that that state might change sometime soon. And I'm wondering how interesting it is for you as as the writer to, to negotiate that transition if it is going to happen. Is he going to be the same, have the same appeal if he's married off? Well, my, my wife, whose views I always take with great seriousness, says that the moment I marry Bruno off, I lose half my readers. Um, so <laughs> I have to bear that. I have to bear that in mind. Um, and uh, he hasn't found the right woman yet. I mean, he. Um, I mean, he's he's. And it's really, he hasn't told me yet. The thing is, Bruno has become a hugely realistic person in my head, as has the whole of Saint-Denis. I mean, I, uh, uh, the, the people who live there and, and so on, I mean, they're as real to me as are my real neighbors. And um, I remember once when I was writing, uh, one of the books I was writing uh, was called... Um, the Devil's Cave, and in that I had a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a dangerously attractive woman uh, who was really quite a, a bad, quite a baddie, and she uh, was determined to seduce Bruno for her own for her own purposes. And in my plan for the book, I mean, I thought, well, of course, Bruno is just a guy; he will fall for her for her subtle, seductive ways. But as I was trying to write this chapter, it was like a force field came out of the came out of my desk at me, saying, "I am not going to drop my trousers for this woman." And um, it was like he had a mind of his own. This 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 character in my head, and so I am waiting for him to tell me what he's going to do next, really. That's absolutely wonderful. I, I love it when the characters become so real that that they really do have a, a, an identity like that for their creator. Um, this, the, the latest book we should mention is called The Body in the Castle Well, and it's got a wonderful subplot which reflects your journalistic skills on a, a little side story about a tribute concert to the black American singer Josephine. I really got called into that because I, I only really knew the name Josephine Baker. I didn't do, know very much about her and a superstar in France in the 1920s. That was a lovely part of the story and I think in quite a few of your books you draw on that real, the real stuff that happened in that area at, at that, in the past, don't you? Well, I, I do because in, in a way I'm a bit of a fraud. I'm, I'm not really uh, a novelist. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, for most of my life I was a journalist, and so I, I do depend upon research and being reality based. And I'm so fascinated by by history, which is what I studied at, at university, that whether it's about the French Resistance or about the prehistoric caves or whatever, I want to make sure that I get it right. And I'm, I'm I was fascinated by Josephine Baker because not only was she the world's superstar of the 1920s but when she moved to France and got this chateau in the in the Dordogne Valley uh, a chateau that I know quite well I've visited it several times uh, which which had indeed as I say in the book has got this special exhibition of of raptors of peregrine falcons and hawks and so on and uh, you can see them going hunting these birds it's an extraordinary thing I was fascinated by Josephine Baker herself and the fact that not only was she a heroine who would smuggle out resistance documents in her underwear she was and was decorated by Charles de Gaulle for it but she was also um, determined to raise this family of 
of, as an example of anti-racism. She adopted nine children, from each one from a different part of the world, to raise them together as part of a family. And when Martin Luther King was shot, and remember that Josephine Baker had been at his side at the great march on Washington in 1963, where he gave his speech, I have a dream, and she then led the crowd in We Shall Overcome. When he was shot, Coretta King, Martin Luther King's widow, asked Josephine Baker over the leadership of the civil rights movement. And Josephine said, no, I can't abandon these children I've adopted. Oh, gosh, really? That, oh, that is fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, Bruno also has his own cookbooks that have done remarkably well. You've won international awards as one of them, the best <laughs> cookbook in French cuisine. And I think you do have your wife, Julia, to, to partly um, credit for that, don't you? Oh, hugely credit for that. I mean, every recipe that one finds in a Bruno novel, I have cooked myself, but with Julia standing at my shoulder. And Julia, who you know was also a journalist and wrote for Gourmet magazine about food for the Washington Post and so on, um, she is a, a, an extraordinarily good cook. And so uh, when my, my, some of my publishers said, you must do a Bruno cookbook, I at once turned helplessly to my wife and said, and said you've got to come in on this. And um, so, yes, and Julia is, uh, without Julia, I really, we probably wouldn't be in the Perigord. I wouldn't have been writing a Bruno series, and I certainly wouldn't have produced a cookbook. So it's really all down to her. And I think you've got a second one that's, is it due, due out soon? It's, it came out, we launched it um, in, uh, at the Frankfurt Book Fair in, in, uh, in, in October. It's called okay. Bruno's Garden Cookbook. It's a lot more about our, um, about our garden and the way that we become increasingly, I think, green. We're not vegetarians, not at all, but we're, we're increasingly delighted by the idea of living on our garden, from our garden. That's lovely. I, I should warn people that are listening that a lot of reviewers say that they get very hungry while they're reading Bruno novels. <laughs> well, my wife says with every novel comes two more kilos. <laughs> <laughs> um, you enjoy very strong following in Germany. And um, I think there's a French-German TV series being made on the Bruno series. And some of your works are published first in Germany. How did that link come about? Well, I, I've got this absolutely stupendously good German publisher called Diogenes. And when they first decided that they would take on my novels, I was invited to dinner with the founder of the company, an old man called Daniel Kale. His son has now taken over. And Daniel at dinner said, well, Martin, we're going to be behind you, but you have to be behind us. And that means I'd like you to promise me this evening you will do at least two weeks book tour every year in Germany. And I said, well, okay, but, but why is that so important? He said, because in, in Germany, they don't just want to read they want to see him, they want to hear him, and they want to smell it. They want to really feel what an author is like. And it turns out that it's a hu in Germany there is this huge tradition of, of authors' readings, and partly because they have fixed prices on all book sales. Every small town in Germany has its own bookstore, and it acts like a kind of a cultural sentiment. It brings in authors on a regular basis for readings. And so this last tour I did in October, I actually did my 500th reading in German language countries, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And, it's, um, and we've worked out something like over 40,000 people have actually you know, attended live these events. And 
that an, an extraordinary kind of loyalty base, I think, and it's uh, and I, I I rather enjoy it, partly because I believe in we should all have fun. So sometimes I will sing and so on and uh, try and make a bit of a show of it for them. That's I mean, whenever there's a song take whenever there's a song taking place in the book, I will sing the song. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, do these readings in English or German? Uh, I do them well. I my German has got a lot better. I always start off giving a talk in German, and then there'll always be a German actor to do the German bits. I will English. Um, the end will do Q and A in 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 German. But uh, it's I've learned more about Germany in the last in these last thanks to Bruno in these last few years, and indeed I've seen more of Germany than most Germans. That's fantastic. Now, getting back to the TV series, how far along is that? And are we likely to ever see one in English? I mean, I think it obviously lends itself beautifully to TV. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's, um, there's a meeting set up at the... Uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, in which the the French and German people are going to be talking to one of the big American groups about whether they, uh, which, which, how they, you know, whether they can work together on this, we will see. I don't know. It's up to my. I mean, I'm I'm just so ignorant of this entire world. I leave these matters to uh, to my excellent literary agent. And uh, yes, um, yeah. I uh, just if if it comes about, it all comes about. If it doesn't, well, say la vie, you know. Yes. Um, did you have any idea when you wrote the first Bruno that you'd still be writing Bruno ten years later, nearly ten years later? No, no, it's more than ten years later now. No, oh, I, 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 I really, I really didn't. Yeah, the first one came out in two thousand and eight, so I, I didn't have any idea it would go like this. Um, and not even when Julian made me write these five paragraphs about the next ones in the series. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's just been, I think I've been very, very lucky in that, in that I was one of the, I think I was the first person to try and make the Perigord itself and its history and its prehistory and its food and its wines into a character. I mean, because it's very much about this region. And so people just sort of, I think, very much responded to this sense of place that the Perigord gives to the novels. Yes, and I think you're a member of one of the gourmet groups there. You've been very much honoured as, as a, a member of the community these days, haven't you? Well, they've been they've been terribly nice to me and very welcoming to me and to the family and to our and to our Basset Hound. Um, and so, yes, I was I was elected a Grand Consul of the uh, Consular de la Vigne de Bergerac, which was body set up back in the year twelve fifty four. Oh my gosh! Uh, to, uphold the quality of, uh, of Bergerac wines and, and I'm also a Chevalier Fagrar and you know, one or two other things like that and it's, they couldn't have been nicer to me yes. yeah that's lovely that's lovely um, perhaps just moving on to your wider career the, some of the books you've written sound fascinating and they do reflect your career as a foreign correspondent you covered the end of communism in Moscow, you covered Clinton's Washington, and the unhappy, unhappy story of the EU in Brussels. Um, what would you say that were the most interesting things that stand out for you, and would you have predicted Brexit back then? Well, I mean, there was a number of events that stand out, and one of them was um, I got to know Margaret Thatcher quite well. Uh, when I was in Moscow, because she'd read my book about Gorbachev and Perestroika, which came out very early, 
um, in 86. Um, and she liked it, and she would make a point whenever she was in Moscow of, of having a, a quiet private chat with me. Um, and I would go and see her after she you know, no longer became prime minister. I never voted for her, but I admired the hell out of her as a, as a woman, as a human being. Um, and so being with her in Moscow and sitting outside the room in the Kremlin where she and Gorbachev were talking and hearing gales of laughter coming from inside. And then at the Maltese, the Malta summit in uh, 1999 when George Bush met Gorbachev for the first time, they were, having, they were planning to meet in ships in the harbor and there was a huge storm came up. George Bush was trapped on his American battleship. Uh, Gorbachev was on a Russian cruise ship with him, and I suddenly found myself with Gorbachev and Edward Shevardnadze, the foreign minister, at the bar having coffee because there was nothing else to do because they couldn't, you know, Bush couldn't leave his boat. And so having this impromptu chat with Gorbachev and Shevardnadze was, 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 a, was great fun. And then, um, then I remember when I, after Moscow, the Guardian made me, you know, moved me to Washington. And I went down to see Clinton in Arkansas, whom I'd known from university days at Oxford. And he said, well, what are you up to now? And I said, well, I'm, as well as, you know, doing the Guardian stuff in Washington, I'm working on a book on the history of the Cold War. And he said, you know, Martin, he said, all of our lives, great power relations have been about missile throw weights, and the meetings have been arms control summits, and we're heading into a new world. It won't be geopolitics anymore. It's going to be geoeconomics. Instead of missiles, it's going to be your trade figures. And instead of arms control summits, it's going to be economic and trade summits. And I thought, absolutely right. We're going from the geopolitics to the geoeconomics. And uh, that was an extraordinary insight from a man I still, I still think of very, very highly, Bill Clinton. So, yeah, you, you have this... You have this sort of access to, to, to people who are in the hot seat taking decisions, and it's, it's fascinating. What I remember from Brussels in particular was that I was one of a group of journalists there who latched on to a story about corruption in the European Commission, which led eventually to the mass recognition of the entire, all of the 13 members at the time of the European Commission, which had never happened before. And it was a real, I think it was a real breakthrough moment, which helped shift the balance of power from the commission towards the parliament. And I remember thinking then that unless they really cleaned up this mess in Brussels, it was going to be very, very hard to get people to carry on supporting it. And sadly, they haven't really cleaned it up quite enough, I think. Yeah. It sounds from, I mean, I haven't followed it at all closely, but sitting on the other side of the world, it, it sounds as if the anti-Brexit people in Britain at the time of the referendum just did a very poor job of representing what the full significance of the change was. They've got themselves into a real hole now, haven't they? How do you think it's going to end? Well, I I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Yes, they they didn't come... Well, and they were up against a big lie from Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers about how much money would be coming back to England if we left the EU. And it reminds you, there's a, there's a that poem, um, the poem of W.B. Yeats, Easter 1916, when he says, um, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of a passionate intensity. And and in Brexit, those of us who were in support of, of staying, we we lacked all conviction because we had our own critiques of uh. the European Union. 
mean, mm. I think the, the fisheries policy is an eco economic crime. And I think the agricultural policy of the EU has been a disaster. However, saying all that, on the balance, I think it's a good to stay together and fix it. By contrast, the people who hated, who, you know, who wanted to hate Europe, wanted to be out of it, they had this passionate intensity. And that's a very powerful tool in politics. So I, um, whether we can, at the last minute, sort of save ourselves from what will be a really grim economic future if we're out there without a deal, um, we will have to see. Yeah, yeah. Look, switching back to your writing career, is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you see as the secret of your success as a fiction author, author particularly? Uh, I don't know. I think I think one thing is always been prepared to go and and do these readings, not just in not just in uh, in, in Germany and in Switzerland, but elsewhere. I mean, I've done them in Italy. I've done a lot in England. Every year, I'll do a couple of tours in the U.S. So, um, I think that's that that's been that's been something. And then, secondly, I think. I think everybody in the world has a soft spot for something about the French way of life. I yeah. mean, however, however much we want to criticize France as a, as a country or French politicians, there is something about the, the whole way of life from the scent of warm croissant to the, uh, to the ooh-la-la or to the, the whole French approach to life, which we all find extremely seductive. And so I think I've been very, very lucky in in writing about La Belle France and finding that I'm in a, a part of France which is absolutely unique and magical. I still I still delight in being in the Perigord. That's wonderful. You split your time now, I think, between Washington and the Perigord, do you? I, well, I, I'm yes. I mean, I'm um, I'm sort of I guess about three months of the year I'm on the road doing uh, doing book tours and promotion events and so on. But uh, about half the year I'm in the Perigord, and the rest I'm in Washington or indeed in uh, in London. And I'll be yeah. in London for Christmas, for example, for the usual family event. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Look, turning to Martin as reader because this is called the joys of binge reading. What I don't know if you'd ever really have much time for binge reading, but are there other people that you read for your entertainment, not for your research? And have you any recommendations for listeners? Oh yes, I mean I'm a, I'm my my classic binge read is a man called Patrick O'Brien. Uh, who yes. wrote a series called about the Master and Commander series about Jack Aubrey, uh, a swashbuckling English, uh, English naval officer in the Napoleonic Wars, and his great friend Stephen Matterin. That's uh, that. I mean, I've read them all through at least three times, which probably came from as a boy. I was fascinated by Hornblower and his series. Um, I and I've always loved Sherlock Holmes, who I think is a master. But I've also enjoyed the other books of Conan Doyle, in particular his. his historical novels, Sir Nigel, The White Company, about the Hundred Years' War, which meant that I knew an awful lot about the Hundred Years' War before I actually came to the Perigord. Um, and then I do enjoy a lot of science fiction, a lot of speculative fiction, which explores alternative ways in which the human race will respond to its environment. So I always love the novels of Stephen Baxter. I think Robert Heinlein is an absolute classic. His, his short, his novella, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, I think is an absolute jewel of its kind, um, in which he tries to imagine what an entirely free market society might be like. 
And then there's the Ben Bobers, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars series, which I think are just terrific. And whenever I'm short or something, I just reach for another Megray. <laughs> and do you read uh, digitally now? I'm sorry? Do you read e-books? I didn't hear you. Do you um, I, I, true, I have read e-books when traveling, because when you're on a month-long book tour, it's a bit of a problem, but I much prefer the feel of a book in my hand. Yes, yes. Look, we're coming to the end of our time together, so circling around, looking back over your writing life at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, is there anything that you would change, and if so, what? Well, I'd endeavoured to meet my wife earlier and to have been married to her for longer, I guess. Um, I, other than that, no, not really. I just think that like so many people of, of, of my generation who were you know, born in World War II, we had this sort of extraordinary era of growth and of public free education and in Britain free care. I mean, you know, you... you I was just so lucky in all of that, and then in my career, being in Moscow for you know for the end of the Cold War, and then Washington, and I am just so lucky in all the things I've been through, seen, and I, I think if I have to put anything on my gravestone, it'll be he didn't miss much. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. So, at what stage did you and Julia get together? Oh, well, we, we actually met, I can tell you the date, it was the 26th of February of 1977. Uh, and we got married in May of the following year, and we've been together ever since, so it's 41 years. Um, and uh, we've got two wonderful daughters, and Julia's been with me all the way in Moscow and in uh, in Washington and, uh, and in Brussels and, um, I don't know, it's just, uh, she's an extraordinary woman, and I still... I will never understand her. Um, I just sort of admire her and go along with the flow. So I think it's a wonderful tribute for a husband to make that they wish they'd met their wife earlier. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before. So, (laughs) (laughs) So what is next for Martin, the writer? Are you a big goal setter? And when you look over the next Um, 12 months, what are you working on? Well, I've, I'm working on a, a book about the Perigord itself, on its history and traditions and culture, um, which um, I'm, I'm close to being finished, close to having finished. The Bruno that will come out next year, which is going to be called Shooting at, The Shooting at Chateau Rock, is already written with my publisher, and I'm now writing the one for 2021. And I've also got an idea I'm toying with for an entirely different set of, um, of, of, of sort of historical novels or speculative historical novels, which is nothing to do with Bruno at all. Um, and it's, so I have all of these things. And then, of course, I've got, I write a column about wine every month for a British paper and for a German magazine. And, um, and I do keep busy, which is the, the best thing that can happen to anybody at this age. Yeah, absolutely. You obviously have a lot of personal interaction with your readers, with the tours that you do, um, you, and from the fact that you're willing to do, go be out there and do things like sing songs, you obviously enjoy that rapport with them. Do you also interact online? And if so, where can people find you? Um, well, I do to a degree. I mean, I, we have the Bruno Chief of Police 
Um, uh, website um, in which there's a there, there, there's a blog and there's a lot about the Perigord and about Bruno and so on and about food um, and that's probably the the, the best place. To, um, I'm I'm on Facebook but I'm I'm getting to the towards the point apparently where I'm not going to be able to have any more Facebook friends because there's a limit to how many you can have. Um, so I the website is probably the best way. Yes, yeah, that's wonderful. And have you got any tours coming up, um, reading tours or? Yes, I do. I mean, I've got, um, I've just finished one and I've just done some in the, in, in the States, but I, we're planning now the, uh, the tour in, uh, in May of, in Germany in May of next year and the, the big tour in, um, in the States in June, but, uh, in the end of January and early February, I'll be doing another little tour in, uh, in Florida. Um, and, uh, uh, then I've got some literary festivals in France to attend. There's no rest for the wicked. No, it sounds like it. Sounds like <laughs> it. Look, it's been wonderful to talk, and um, thank you so much for your time. With all the other things you've got on, really appreciate ma- you making yourself available. Well, thank you very much. It's always a, always a pleasure to talk about books and uh, to address readers, even as it were, secondhand. <laughs> yes. It might help you with your sales in in Australia and this part of the world, New Zealand. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.